We were young until we weren't, but the books stay the same. Rereading, rereading our favorite books. I think I would have enjoyed Puddleglum more if I felt like our other characters had more character and balanced him better. Mm, yes. I was so sad and disappointed because I thought, well, one, we had gone on about how much we love Eustace. And I actually thought Eustace started this book quite strong. We see that he's really been trying to maintain his new whatever. Like now that he's back in the real world. And there's a line that calls back to the first line of Voyage of the Dawn Treader where um, within the first couple of pages, it says that his name, unfortunately, was Eustace Scrub, but he wasn't a bad sort. And so, like, that calls back to the first line of <laughs> Voyage of the Dawn Treader, where it's like, his name was Eustace Clare Scrub, and he almost deserved it. So, in the beginning, it's nice because he's trying to comfort Jill, but he's kind of mucking it up because he hasn't quite figured things out yet. And I thought, you know, them asking to go to Narnia, which, again, I think this is, like, the first time the kids have actively tried to go have have called on Aslan to try and go to Narnia. So I was like, interesting. I'm, I was really into it. And then the scene with the cliff where like Jill accidentally almost murders him, I thought was really cool. You are dark. And I kind of like it. <laughs> but then uh-huh. they just, after that, I felt like both of them kind of devolved into stock kid characters where they bicker a decent amount, but like are ultimately good hearted. But I didn't feel like either of them after that had any real distinguishing characteristics like they didn't feel distinct necessarily from each other or from other chronicles of narnia protagonists and i was really really disappointed because eustace has so much potential and i mean like jill obviously also has potential but we like just meet her and then she pretty much isn't anything different so i feel like if they'd been more like real characters then that might have balanced Puddleglum for me as well. That is a good point. And I and I agree with you um, because it does feel like after they go to Narnia that their characters are basically on autopilot and there's really, there's no difference between them and say like Edmund and Susan. You can't really tell that this is the character of Eustace. And it's a bummer because in that early scene, there's this, group of bullies at what is called the experiment house that's the name of this school that have been picking on jill in particular and apparently these bullies have now turned their sights to eustace because everyone has noticed that he's changed he's different and now they've decided that they are going to kick his butt because of that i sit next to your son flats in school and he is a fine boy and all and i don't want you to take this the wrong way but he wants to kick my butt dad what are you doing uh nothing son what did i tell you about talking to strangers now he's gonna kick my butt and i thought oh that's interesting like there's gonna be a huge incentive for him to resume his old behaviors it's gonna be cool to watch him deal with that temptation Of like, I can sort of spare myself this short-term pain by reverting to old habits, or I can continue my journey, and even if it'll it'll cost me in the now, in the long term, it'll be the better for me. But 
we don't see that. And I think that's purely because they managed to escape to Narnia where there is no outside force antagonizing Eustace in regards to his behavior, which I don't know, maybe something more can be could have been done with the, the witch in this story where she could have somehow alluded to that or somehow pressed him on that intentionally or otherwise and just done something with it because yeah there there really isn't anything here that expands on his character from the voyage of the dawn treader it's sad and i'm i'm trying to think of something that like i mean i think that the big distinguishing thing is that like Sometimes it seems like these books, like the adventures, are written specifically for the characters that are in them. Like, we talked about Home Voyage and the Dawn Fighter. There kind of is an island for each of the characters that is, like, their island. And, like, Magician's Nephew. Diggory is, like, directly connected to or invested in what happens to him. It plays into his concerns and worries and flaws. This doesn't seem to play into either Jill or Eustace's personalities or flaws or anything at all. Like, there are ways maybe it could have been done, but, like, I I truly have no idea who Jill is as a human being. So there's not much I can do with her. And as for Eustace, yeah, maybe if they had spent more time with the Green Lady and maybe she kind of pampered him or treated him in a way reminiscent of how his parents had treated him and he started falling into bad habits oh that would have been good and that could have been part of her sort of like seduction process of him but it really does feel like as kind of cool as i like as i think this narrative is i think it's one of the more interesting like just from a straight up like plot perspective kind of cool there's like an enchanted prince He's got a, like, whole 12 Dancing Princesses sort of vibe going on. And I, I love that. But, like, it doesn't have any real... I mean, Puddleglum is the character who has sort of the best arc and is the most seemingly connected to this whole thing. So, as you pointed out, like, his kind of life whatever directly plays into, like, how they should have approached this entire scenario. So. I do think it's interesting that there's just kind of a complete disconnect between the other two characters and the story they're in. You know, I I don't know. I don't have any basis for this, but like Puddle Glum in some ways feels like a parody of Bilbo where (laughs) it's it's like the same kind of thing. But the inverse where Bilbo is like this super adventurous hobbit and everyone's (laughs) like, oh, he's a he's a crackpot. Good hobbits stay home and are content with their lives. And this is the case where it's like, oh, Puddleglum is too optimistic. He should go on this adventure in order to, like, set him straight, you know. And I don't know if that was intentional or not, but I kind of got that vibe. But yeah, it's everything is disconnected. And it's weird because you're right. All the pieces are there for, like, a fun little story. An enchanted prince, a witch, giants weird frog people, weird mole people, adventures underground, I don't know, talking owls. It's all there. And if you were just to tell somebody, like if you were to pitch this to a movie studio, they'd be like, oh, that sounds fun and freaking delightful. Let's do it. 
and then this is what you get, they'd be like, what? What is this? Like, what investment do Jill and Eustace have in Prince Rinian being found? Like, what difference does it make for Narnia? What does, difference does it make for them? Uh, and, the, and the long and short of it is that it doesn't. There's no payoff to, like, rescuing Rinian in any real sort of satisfying way. There's no payoff for Jill and Eustace really beating up their bullies. Doesn't really change them as characters. And, like, the moments that are supposed to be payoffs, like, throughout this book, in a thing that delighted me, they they refer to each other by their last names, so Scrub and Pole. Like, th there's a payoff at the end where they think they're about to die, and they and this is a thing they apparently do in the Chronicles of Narnia all the time, where when characters think they're about to die, they shake hands, which yeah. feels very British. <laughs> So, but in this moment, they shake hands, then they refer to each other by their first names. And the narrative tells us explicitly, this is the first time in this story that they've done that. And it's supposed to, I guess, to feel like this moment of growth. Ah, uh, yeah, I guess that is basically the extent of growth that happens in this story. And it is so, that's it. <laughs> Yeah, actually, you know what? That should have been, like, their characters, is that, like, Jill is constantly, like, she's been bullied this whole time. Eustace was sucking up to the bullies. The whole thing should have been Jill constantly, like, reminding Eustace of, like, what he did, and Eustace being like, I'm trying to do better! And, like, yeah, the end then could have been her being like, actually, you're not so bad, we're friends now. Ugh, Morgan. You you are a creative genius. You should have written the Chronicles of Narnia. You would have done these books so much more justice. You are better than the rest of us. If no one told you yet you're a genius and an artist, let me be the first. It is really remarkable. And maybe this is more of a discussion for the end of the series. But it is remarkable just how mediocre these books generally are. This might be the most mediocre book of them all even with puddle glum it's just like everything just feels so much on autopilot that you just kind of don't care that things happen like you know things are gonna work out and when they do it's more like well i expected that rather than like a sense of tr there's no sense of triumph you know it I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think... It's a big, big letdown. <laughs> I know you complained a lot about the pacing in Prince Caspian. I actually have a bigger problem with the pacing in this book. Yes. Because there's like... I mean, other there's the beginning, which is, I think, a really great set. I will say, I think the beginning is probably actually, like, the strongest part of this book. Because I think, yeah, the beginning's a good setup. Like I agree, yeah. I, I was intrigued. But then they do a lot of traveling. And we've previously established that while traveling scenes can't be well done in the Chronicles of Narnia, normally only if they're kept relatively brief. These scenes are not kept relatively brief. Five hours later. Three days later. One eternity later. And then, really, there's the giant city, and then they go underground and, like, have the climax of the book, 60 to 70 pages before it ends, 
And then there's like the whole bit about like the super underworld and the gnomes. And I was just like, I, I do not care. I can't believe that the city is flooding because there is no urgency yes. in anyone's decision-making <laughs> processes. Right. Obviously, Frayne the Prince, who I realize we've been calling Rinian, but I think his name's actually Rillian with an L. Oh. So, oops. Oh, my God. Oh, who cares? It's a level of um, <laughs> how much we didn't care about him as character, I guess. To be fair, I think I also read it as Rinian the entire time, so... You know what? There's, I think there's just something about Caspian's line. They just produced the most boring human beings alive. You know when he was interesting? When? When he was cursed. Oh, you're right. When he was like the obnoxious like guy who was laughing too much and like being frivolous about things. Then he was interesting. <laughs> it's as soon as he's cured. <laughs> It's it's you almost feel compelled to like go back to bit. Actually, can you actually sit back in the chair because you were better before? Yeah. <laughs> I know it sucks for you, but I liked you better before. Yeah, the sort of like mania of him when he's enchanted, I found really entertaining. I think I so I wrote in a note that said Hamlet exclamation mark. I'm not sure entirely why I'm trying to figure out because apparently I didn't write down the page number because I'm an idiot. Uh. <laughs> But, like, I do think he's acting a little bit like Hamlet when he's, like, manic. That vibe was there and strong, and I um, am in love with Hamlet because I have no taste. So I was enjoying that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it it would make sense that you love Hamlet given your love for Lion King. Oh, my God. Shut up. (laughs) Every time, every time Hamlet or Lion King's brought up, I'm going to be mentioning it. (laughs) But I think you're right. The pacing, it's so weird where there's just like no sense of urgency in the last 50 pages. At least Prince Caspian had a final battle happen within the last 30 pages. At this point there, you know, when the witch is killed in her snake form, they cut off her head and it happens in like a page. The battle is over in a page. And I thought, oh, this is way too easy. Like, there's going to be something else. Like, she's going to come back or somehow reattach her head or there's going to be something. It can't be over. Uh, You foolish whelp, do you think you could defeat me? I'm invincible. Uh. That's a long name. Can I call you Envy for short? But it is. It is over. And that's it. And you hear nothing more about the green lady Something I found interesting reading around about this. Well, I don't know if interesting is the, the right word, but uh, reading around this about this book, there there's a lot of fan theories that the green lady is actually the white witch come back to life. And let me first just say that is not supported in the text at all. If anything, what I've noticed is that when when you see these sort of like half-baked fan theories that come about from stories it's because the story itself is so boring that fans of the books have to come in and actually try to make it interesting. <laughs> like, all we know about this this witch lady is that she wants to take over Narnia. Well, we don't I'm, know why. We, Go ahead. I was going to say, the other thing we know, and I'm guessing this is what people are getting that theory from, is that we're told multiple times that she is, quote, 
the same type as the White Witch. What that means? Who knows? Yeah. I mean, I think probably at least a better fan theory would be that she's somehow Janice's daughter or something. Mm, yeah. That at least might have some kind of something. But yeah, we have no idea where this woman came from, how she got her powers, etc. Who she is, why she wants what she wants, what she's going to do with Narnia when she rules it. What's that all about? Does she want revenge for the White Witch? What? How? Why? I have so many questions! It's just odd. And she's described like the White Witch and the Green Witch are both paired off as like northern witches, which... Is just completely retconned by the magician's nephew when we learned that the white witch Jadis came from a different world completely. So, like, they're not related at all, as far as I can tell. I don't know. Like, there's just not enough there to really operate with anything. And when your primary villain is just the most stockiest of stock characters... That is going to inflect on everything else in the story. Like, a good villain is a villain that in some fashion challenges the identity, some big part of the identity of the heroes. Like, the Joker isn't interesting because he comes up with these half-cocked schemes to steal the mobster's money he's interesting because he is basically an inverse of batman and he's constantly challenging the principles of batman and forcing batman to reckon with himself or at least for us as readers to reckon with what it means to be batman the green lady does not force us to reckon with what it means to be prince rillian or rinian whatever his name actually is it does not reckon with Eustace's character, Jill's character. We don't get anything out of her other than that she randomly can turn into a snake. She randomly bit Star Lady and killed her. And she randomly enchanted Prince Rillian for this extremely convoluted scheme to take over Narnia. Do you want to say that again? Uh, you not know what? Saying it's fine. <laughs> for reasons unknown to us. Which, like, really? She could have just married him? Yes! That's all she yes. had to do. Marry him. It's <laughs> Yeah. Uh, just going back for one second, I found out why I wrote down Hamlet. It's because the word Hamlet is literally in the text. We are told that Rillian is dressed in black and altogether looked a little bit like Hamlet. That's why I made the note. But yeah, no, I mean, her plan makes no sense. She as a character makes no sense. Which is unfortunate, because I think <laughs> a lady who can turn into a snake and is scheming to get the throne could have been real interesting. Like, how cool would that have been to, like, yeah. you know, we find out she invaded the Underland and ensorcelled all of them, right? So, like, she's not originally from there, but it kind of would have been cooler if she was from, like, Underland and had some sort of scheme about that or like if this was a long running thing or if she just happened to capture Rillian or I don't know. Or she was just somehow related to Rillian or the start like maybe, Yeah. You know, I'm just throwing it out there. What if she was the sister of Star Lady 
and she was pissed that Star Lady got to marry Prince Caspian. And she is like, I want to marry a babe, so I'm going to steal the sun and invade your land and basically just destroy like if it was basically what Jadis did to her sister, right? Where she's just like, rather than let my sister win, I will destroy everything. That would have been so freaking cool. Or like... We have the whole thing brought up in Voyage of the Dawn Treader that, like, there are stars that have fallen because they did a bad thing. Right! Oh! What if she was some kind of fallen bad star? Oh my god! Ugh. Us talking for a couple hours, we thought of better ideas. No wonder J.R.R. Tolkien hated his books. God I mean, I I think it's unfortunate because I think that the the elements of this book are really some of the most, like, fairy tale esque in a cool way. I think it's one of the darkest books, which is why I think there are some like really weird sexual undertones in various places. But literally, I, I wrote this down. When Aslan sends Jill off the quest, he tells her that like they're gonna do this or die in the attempt. Right. He literally is straight up like, you could die. Which isn't really something that like necessarily obviously that's always something that's has the potential to happen in the Chronicles of Narnia, but like it's not really vocalized as a real possibility. And, like, this does. And, I mean, yeah, it opens on a scene of a child who's been, like, beaten and bullied and, like, two seconds later almost accidentally commits murder. There's a lot of cool, darker undertones to this book. There's a lot of just really interesting stuff, like the giants who want to eat them. Yeah. <laughs> How do you take all of these very, very cool elements, but yeah, write a story that I ultimately was reading and I was like, I'm kind of bored for parts of, and especially towards the end, I liked the scenes with Rillian when he was cursed and when they're having the whole gaslighting scene with the Green Lady. Those were great. That's why there should have been more of that and less of the travel and less of whatever was going on at the end. Yeah, there's a moment near the end where my interest was piqued because they, they meet Caspian, right, when he's dead in Aslan's country. And Eustace for a second is kind of freaking out because it's like, oh, is Caspian a zombie? Is Caspian a ghost? And, which is funny. But Caspian responds, oh, said Caspian, I see what's bothering you. You think I'm a ghost or some nonsense. But don't you see? I would be that if I appeared in Narnia now because I don't belong there anymore. But one can't be a ghost in one's own country. I might be a ghost if I got into your world. I don't know. But I suppose it isn't yours either. Now you're here. And I'm like, whoa. Is the narrative suggesting that the kids are dead somehow? And they're basically now in heaven. But the narrative immediately course corrects and tells us, no, they're going to be, Aslan's going to send them back. But it's like, that would have been an interesting, very dark moment of like, in a kind of like Sixth Sense twist, you did not realize you were dead the, the whole time or something. I don't know. Like you had actually died in the underground and you just dreamed that you got out in your last moments of death. That, I mean, again, I'm sorry. I know this is a children's book and I'm coming at this with my messed up thinking inspired by goosebumps, but it would have been so cool if these kids... We're dead. And they're like, oh, oh, like actual consequences for participating in this quest. I mean, spoiler alert for the last battle. <laughs> well, but like Aslan does 
have a very ominous line right after that where he foreshadows that, where he says, when you meet me here again, you will have come to stay. That's a that's a threat. Somebody <laughs> needs to report Aslan to the police. He's freaking threatening to murder children now. Jesus. Listen up. I'm ready to go after these rabble rousers. Oh, no. Not until you get a warrant. Ugh, I hate due process. You're a loose cannon, meow, meow, fuzzy face. No, I'm not. I'm a cannon, maybe, but a loose cannon. There's another line where they talk about all the pains that they've suffered throughout the journey when they finally free Prince Rillian, and I think Jill's thinking to herself, all the suffering that they went through, it was all made worth it because of this moment of freeing Rillian and getting him back to his dad. And then I, I remember thinking, what pains are you talking about? Like, never did these children feel at risk to me, even in the clutches of giants that want to eat them, even in the underground that was filled with these weird mole people. Their characters didn't really suffer in any way other than like, yeah, they they were cold for a while. And it's like the most surface level kind of pain that they experienced. You, if you contrast this to like Diggory, uh, obviously there's the, the physical struggle of going to the Garden of Eden, getting this apple, doing all these things. But the more prescient and interesting conflict that he's dealing with is worrying for his mom. And that's where you feel a lot of the emotion come from. There's not really much emotional resonance in this book from this journey because there's just not really enough here to operate with, to really connect with these kids. And and I feel like that's reflected in the ending where it's like they beat up the kids and it's like the most amateurish wrap up of a conflict because it's not like they're always going to have swords with them. <laughs> right. They're not going to have Prince Caspian with like these bullies aren't going away. And I think C.S. Lewis tries to move past all that by making a stupid joke about how the head of the school, who, of course, is a woman. Of course. And that's why there's all these problems at this school. Am I right? Am I right? Uh, she gets transferred out after she's found to be useless and she ends up in Parliament because, ha ha, Parliament's useless. How very clever, C.S. Lewis. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what to say about this. Yeah, I was I was just thinking like about the emotional resonance thing too because I was thinking like how even if we don't have the story tie in more with their like their very own character arcs, what what could be like a Diggory and his mom sort of moment? And I was like, what if Eustace had met Rillian before or something? Like what if and this would involve changing Voyage of the Dawn Treader too. So, like, I, I don't want to do that because I love Voyage of the Dawn Treader. But, like, you know, what if we had seen Rillian as, like, a young toddler or something? And there had been, like, you know, a moment of, like, Eustace and this kid. And then there would have at least been some, like, emotional reason Eustace wanted to rescue the prince. Mm. What if what if there was at least some tie-in with the fact, like, we don't get to see Eustace talk to Caspian. Like, we don't get to see Eustace talk to anyone he's talked to before. He never met Trumpkin. I wish we could have at least gotten in the emotion that way, that, like, Eustace is emotionally invested in this family. And, oh, huh. <laughs> yeah, it's, we're really struggling here, I feel like, because it's, there's, yeah, there's just nothing. There's, like, uh, the, the beating that the kids seem to be truly makes me angry. 
It makes me so angry. You're right. It's so stupid. Stupid! 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 Oh, and let's not forget! You're so stupid! It doesn't solve anything. It's useless. And yeah, and it's just Clive getting his anti-school, anti-woman, anti-government agenda. Like, all at once. All at the same freaking time. It's amazing. Good for you, CS. <laughs> way to do it. You know, you don't have to change anything in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Just keep it that way. But actually have Eustace meet with Caspian at the beginning of this book and have Caspian tell this story about this kid. And you can, like, set it up where Eustace is, like, instantly invested because Caspian's a friend. Well, kind of. I don't know if they're if you can really say they're friends, but they have, like, fond memories of each other. And, and so you set it up where Eustace is instantly invested in finding this kid for, for Caspian. And Jill's like... I don't know what this is all about. I don't know you, Caspian. I don't know this kid. I don't care. I'm in a weird place. I'm uncomfortable. I just want to get out of here. But she's just forced to go along. And then you kind of have that antagonism between Eustace and Jill, where one is really invested in this adventure. One is really not invested. And she kind of has to learn to become invested. There are just so many possibilities. But it's frustrating because like so much of the story feels like it happens off screen. Mm. The same thing with Prince Caspian, where so much of what is actually interesting in that story happens off screen and we only see it at like the very end. And it's just like if you just flipped this story a little bit or just adjusted it so that Caspian's more involved, there's more emotional connection to the story to what's happening and why these characters should care something yeah can't believe it i'm uh, just i'm saying this but i'm actually like i think the last battle is gonna look better in comparison <laughs> i don't know i i one note just kind of talking about the last battle i'm not sure if this actually comes into play or not because like the only part of the last battle i remember is like the very end but, like, there's the whole scene when they're being um, taken around the underworld to get to the castle where they see Father Time sleeping and they're told, well, him and, like, a whole bunch of, like, dragons and other creatures, and they're told that they're going to wake up at the end of the world. And I was like, huh, I don't remember that. But foreshadowing? I I guess so. It's interesting Hopefully. because that would be in the order that he wrote these books. That would be, oh gosh, I think this was technically three books before, maybe two books before. Two books, I think. Yeah, two books. So yeah, I guess he, he had an idea that last battle was how he's going to end things, so... Or maybe not. Maybe he just wrote that because he thought it would be a fun thing. And then he's like, oh, you know, it's the J.K. Rowling <laughs> method of writing stories where you introduce an element, you go back, you realize, oh, actually, I can use that thing for this part of the story. Well, I mean, there's nothing wrong with, like, accidentally setting up your own Chekhov's oh, gun no, and using it. Oh, no, of course not. Of course not. Like, there's no way you can plan out every single detail of a book series you know, the small things are going to be introduced that just so happen to work out in really great and interesting ways. And there's there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But it would make sense to me, given how unplanned everything else about this book series was, 
if that element was unplanned as well and just planted there without any idea for an actual payoff for it. But actually, since since we're talking about that, let's talk about this underworld, because when we first enter it, I was so initially fascinated by it because there's like feelings of like, oh, it's kind of like Hades. They pass over a river. Mm -hmm. There's all these elements like, oh, are they going into some kind of spiritual realm? Are they going into Hades, a Hades like place? Are they going into hell? And the way that the, I guess, residents of this place are described, it's very ghostly. Like they're just sort of moving around in a bustle without any clear direction or expression or reason why. It's just masses of people there. And it feels very creepy and otherworldly, literally. I'm, I'm so curious to learn more about this place. Is this like some magical realm that this is where the witch comes from and this explains why she is the way she is? But no, it's literally the most boring possible explanation for what's going on, which is all the known people are just known people. They've just been hypnotized to, and that's why they're moving about. There's nothing mystical or magical about the place. It's just an underground city, and that's it. Yeah, I think that really this story is a whole bunch of elements that could have been really cool that are not because... They're not utilized properly. Like the the underworld could have been really cool. I don't know what he could have done with it, like how he could have done it differently. But there's just something that you can't invoke that kind of imagery and then just say there's nothing to it. Well, yeah, and to have to have all the like creatures of like the apocalypse there and stuff, and like is. It could have been, like, even if this isn't necessarily, like, a Hades or something like that, like, what if this is basically the next world? Once the overworld sort of dies, this will rise up and be the next world. I don't know. Anything. (laughs) Instead, there's gnomes. And then we have to have the whole conversation about whether or not they're going to go down to the even deeper place. So deep. So, so deep. Which, like, I loved the Reaper Sheep reference. You know, I love my boy Reba Cheap. I'm glad Eustace remembers him and remembers him correctly. But, like, I would have lost that line to not have them waffling about the f***ing going to the underworld. I I wish I could have avoided, like, all of that stuff after with the gnomes. I compare this to, like, again, sorry, Lord of the Rings referencing coming. I compare this to Moria. Where it's almost kind of an inverse of this, where Moria, it's like, sure, it's a big old mine. It's big and fancy. It's where the dwarves live. It's like very cool. But there's actually something deeper. So deep. So, so deep. There's an even more primal element that you discover there in the Balrog and this deep history that was literally buried in these mines. And this is kind of like the opposite of that. Or actually, you don't even need to go, like, outside this book. You can just look at Charn, this, like, desolate place. But like I said in the Magician's Nephew episode, it's so evocative of something more. And I wish there had been something, something, anything like that here to actually 
you know, when the book tells us, if you ever end up in Narnia, be sure to check out those caves. Like, to actually make me want to go check out those caves. There's, it's just a cave. It's a cave. It has water in it. Big freaking deal. I mean, pools and caves are kind of awesome, but agreed. Nothing to set it apart from any other pool and cave. I don't know. I guess for me, if I was in Narnia, this random cave would be the last thing on my list to see anyway. I'd rather see Care Paravel or the Lonely Islands out in, in the east or ah. not the Lonely Islands, the Lone Islands. Yeah, I was going to uh, say uh, <laughs> wrong, wrong reference. <laughs> oops well anyway that would have been interesting and even this book seems to acknowledge that it's boring because there's an earlier reference where they're at care Paravel and there's a blind poet who i'm sure doesn't see color <laughs> relating the story of the horse and his boy and the book's like we don't have time for that story right now but it's very interesting i promise a lot more interesting than this book, which I guess in a way turned out to be true. Which, like, I want to say, is this the second time that someone has told the story of Horse and His Boy? And, like, Horse and His Boy has been referenced by name. I feel like there was another book in which it was like, that story is told in Horse and His Boy. Right. It might have been in Voyage or maybe Prince Caspian. Uh, yeah, I can't remember either. I do know there is a second reference in here where uh, Rillian is singing a song about Corn Thunderfist. Yes! You know what? Controversial moment time. Let's hear it. If it wasn't for the racism, Horse and his Boy would be a better f***ing book than this one. <laughs> I don't disagree because I think the sort of structure of that story is pretty decent for an entertaining story it's just that all the dressings for it are bad 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 and like i know we discussed in that episode like it's kind of impossible to tell that story without being racist but mm. just the idea of having all these characters butting heads and and going on this adventure and trying to figure things out and at the very least, I know I complained about the characters and how they're kind of non-characters in that book, at least uh, Shasta. But I, I'm going to have to take that back because these characters are much, much worse. <laughs> it's truly a crime what was done to Eustace. If you want Eustace content, that's why you're coming to this book. I'm sorry. You're going to be supremely disappointed. Yeah. All right. I think we've, like, covered all the things we can be negative about, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Weirdly, I think that this is our most negative episode in a way. I don't know. Obviously, the Horse and His Boy episodes were negative in a different way. I think it's just, yeah, because it's more, like, instead of being, like, deeply bad because of its extremely problematic content, it's, like, has a lot of stuff that could have been cool, but is ultimately pretty boring and mediocre. It's just harder to, like, do anything with that. But we only have one more of these babies to go, and it's the one where everyone dies. <laughs> so uh. do your evil cackle. <laughs> I know. I mean, I won't say I'm not looking forward to that. 
And we're finally going to get to talk about the lipstick. Oh, so exciting. Well, I mean, do we want to close this by, like, trying to find some positives about this book? Um. Do you have any? <laughs> I mean, I think my positives were basically that, like, yeah, it's it's darker. It's got, like, the fairy tale stuff. There was a reference to the Trafalgar Lions that I've seen. So there you go. Mm. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like I said, I love Puddle Glum so freaking much. I am torn because he alone was enough to make this book worthwhile to read. And if I could just have like, just take his lines and read that as a story, that'd be great. But I don't know if I can recommend this book based off of that alone. Now, you know what? I feel like the positive I should give is the one line of Puddle Glums that I wrote down that I really enjoyed, which is when they're maybe going to drown under in the cave. Oh, says, yeah. And you must always remember there's one good thing about being trapped down here. It'll save on funeral expenses. That's a good f***ing line. Let's just leave it there. I think that's a great way to end this episode. Next time, I guess it's uh, the last battle. We'll see how how that lives up to our memories because, oh boy, not fond at all. But it is the end of Chronicles of Narnia. It will be the end of a journey. And thank God for that. So, until next time... Hasta la vista. <laughs> <laughs>